for July 15th, 2019. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 576. Hail Idra. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. No matter how many years pass, no matter how far uh, apart we are, no matter how many countries uh, separate us, no matter how long it's been since we, we've seen each other, we're like, uh, we're like a group of people who uh, have a relationship that spans across time and space, and, and none more so than uh, me, Matt Rather, and my good friend pete fenzel hey pete how are you doing hey you know matt i'm doing all right i'm feeling a little melancholy but uh <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking if i just sit here and create someone will just keep bringing me sandwiches and then i'll feel better <laughs> uh sandwich sounds real nice when you're uh when you're doing a lot of podcasting uh you know after that that second or third hour of talking into a microphone just having a yeah. sandwich show up on a plate is is good hey we're referring to and, and going to be talking about a documentary by nick broomfield that was released recently um, I think it's major markets now. I'm not sure if it's going wide. I'm not sure if it has enough uh, audience to go wide, though. Though the theater I was in was packed, actually, it was packed with like uh, Jewish ladies in their 70s, and it was uh, pr- pretty amazing. We're talking about the the documentary Marianne and Leonard, uh, Words of Love, which is a um, uh, sort of bio documentary about uh, the relationship. It's it's. I'm, I'm actually not sure what it's what it's about, but it purports to be about the relationship between Leonard Cohen, the the singer and songwriter, and Marianne Elen, I H L E N. I'm not totally sure the right or I Mariana, uh, but you know he called her Marianne. Um, who uh, was his, uh, they had a relationship that lasted through a lot of the kind of the formative and, and big years of Leonard Cohen's life, on again, off again. It was the 60s, free love was a thing. And, you know, I don't know, he was a, uh, he was a creative person and, and you just can't, just can't tie them down, can you, Pete? You can't tie down those creative <laughs> men, can you? I mean, you can, but then nobody makes documentaries about them, right? Instead, they do silly things like care for their children. Yeah. <laughs> So that well, that would be yeah, that would be silly. That would be a real waste of Leonard Cohen's life to to care for his children. Though though they those two never had uh, those two never had children. Anyway, um, so uh, anyway, Pete, is this your first uh, encounter with Leonard Cohen, or like is that uh, how do you know uh, who Leonard Cohen is? So first of all, I thought he was Lou Reed before the movie started. <laughs> Good. I mean, I totally get it. And that's hilarious. (laughs) He's not, by the way. Spoiler alert. Leonard Cohen is not Lou Reed uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, I was not familiar. I I was first introduced to the idea of Leonard Cohen through the Watchmen movie adaptation where his song Hallelujah is is it covered in that movie? I think by somebody, or is it actually his version? I don't even remember. No, it's not. No, uh, uh, it's not his version. It's probably okay. the Jeff Buckley version. I mean, I you yeah. know the one that I remember, the cover version of Hallelujah that I remember. I mean, the, here's the big thing: Leonard Cohen wrote the song Hallelujah, right? Okay, and uh, not so the one they sing at church, but a different one. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, no, hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. Hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. 
Yeah, exactly. You think he's a word guy rather than a than a melody guy. So it was really brave of him to write a song that was entirely one word. No, he wrote the song Hallelujah with the blowing of the horn and the sexy times, right? Yeah. The, well, that's the. I mean, you know, the blowing of the horn. Yeah, I heard there was a secret chord that David played, and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do ya? It goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift, the baffled king composing, hallelujah. And uh, apparently he wrote like 80 or 90 verses to, to it. Um, and there's actually like a really interesting and kind of uh, uh, history to that song and like the way it became um, it became the version that that we know, which is mostly the Jeff Buckley version. Anyway, so that's uh, so that's so you knew who that you knew who that was. He's not Lou Reed, uh, but beyond that, you came to it with completely fresh eyes. Yeah, I had not even listened to any of his music, as far as I can remember, which feels very strange. And I hear people talking about him from time to time. I went into this movie having no idea really who this man was or what he did or why Dustin Hoffman was on the poster. <laughs> uh, that's another joke. Look, here's the thing: I'm going to make a lot of jokes part of it is kind of self-protective because there's a lot about leonard cohen and his ideas and his art that like adolescent me is like still angry about and reacts to in a negative way in that sort of echo in the back of my mind but i want to recognize that that this is a pretty impressive artist and that for all my jokes i don't want to diminish him too much uh and for all of my sort of glibness i don't want to oversimplify the complexity of what this movie is about what the movie is talking about and then what we'll be talking about when we're talking about the movie all of which is i think worth discussing because i mean you can tell everybody who he really is right yeah, at least sure. from your estimation in the public sense yeah he's so he's He's Canadian. He's Jewish. Uh, you know, he had a, a kind of a, a difficult family life, which you know is common, I guess, to a lot of to a lot of artists, and which should neither be discounted nor like over romanticized, uh, I guess. Um, but he had sort of literary aspirations, and uh, he wanted to be, you know. Um, uh, he he went to McGill, uh, the Canadian University, and he uh, uh, got his degree there. And he wanted to be um, a novelist. And so, in the like, let's uh, let's just like skip a lot of uh, his life. Uh, the the part of this this film that he uh, that is sort of uh, the part of his life that's relevant to his film is like one thing and another um, leads him to come to this Greek island, uh, uh, Hydra, or as they all say, Idra in the uh in the film uh, though we the you know anglicized spelling is H Y D R A. And so he goes to Hydra um to like live there cheaply to you know be among the you know be among the ancient rocks of Greece and the the Mediterranean and like uh and then to work every day uh and you know work he does producing a uh novel called Beautiful Losers that they um I mean there's there's a couple of uh uh poetry collections that he publishes one is called Flowers for Hitler which is you know like it's you know nice joke dude but like Baudrillard did it uh, not Baudrillard, Baudelaire. I get the French. All, all their names, the French. All their names sound the same to me. Uh, Baudelaire did it, you know, with Le Fleur du Mal uh, a long time ago. Um, uh, but uh, produced a novel called called Beautiful Losers, which was a uh, you know maybe a fever dream, kind of incomprehensible, maybe a little William S. Burroughs esque kind of novel about his uh um 
novel about his ideas and his uh uh you know kind of fevered uh greek brain movements you know <laughs> 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 but, I mean, that's, title, it's worth title. it's worth <laughs> it's worth noting that this sort of creativity when you when I was growing up. First of all, one note before we get too far: it's worth noting that from 1951 to 1952, Leonard Cohen overlapped at McGill as an undergrad with William Shatner, and I really hope they met, but I don't know if they did because that would have <laughs> been great. Uh, but but also, uh, um, this this is a sort of there's a paradigm here with regards to Leonard Cohen's fever dream writing, which transmogrifies into his music, which I'm sure you'll talk about in just a bit. That's when I was growing up and was a teenager and, and a student felt like it was very powerful in the general culture of like creativity and writing and poetry. Uh, and, and it, even to the extent you didn't have to call it anything. And one of the aspects of this movie and watching this movie that we can all think about, and those of us who haven't seen the movie, by all means, continue to listen. I think hopefully the podcast will still be worthwhile to you. But this idea of this kind of creativity and this sort of set of values around this kind of creativity is something that now is old. And watching this movie and all of its kind of cracked and popped old film stock and interviews with aging people who were young when all this was going down really reinforced to me that this notion of like, I'm going to go to a Greek aisle, drop acid for, you know, years and write a stream yeah, of for like ten, for novel. 10 or 15 years. Right. Yeah. And like, I'm going to write a stream of consciousness novel and not only will it be good, but it will have been it will be considered a like meaningful expansion of the human project. Right. Like this is something that people like haven't done yet and are and are kind of expanding their minds by doing as opposed to something that feels kind of like a cliche at this point, something that you would do mainly for the YouTube video that you would take of yourself doing it. Right. Like that you would then publish. Right. Like, look at me. I'm on, you know, I'm on the Isle of Mykonos and I'm going to, you know, drink a handle of Jack Daniels and write a stream of consciousness novel in one sitting. Match that heart, uh, fam. You know, yeah, smash that subscribe button and get those bells for further reminders of my bohemian lifestyle, right? It's, like, very, very different. Uh, and, and I almost, like, I missed the time. I missed whatever inflection point or great divide we crossed. This is sort of an apt metaphor for this style of writing, right? Is that at some point the rivers were draining into the future, and at some point the rivers uh, were draining into the past, and at some point we we crossed the great divide with regards to this kind of creativity. And this is a movie about that sort of old way of doing things. Um, if you think that's fair, I'm not sure if you think it's fair. I totally think it's fair. I mean, I'm I'm very interested in this. I'm very interested in this idea, but I want to stick a pin in it because I want to do this uh, this caps finish my capsule biography oh, yeah. of uh, of Leonard Cohen. So kind of concurrently with this he starts uh uh writing songs and i mean i guess if you're writing poems they all are potentially songs poems of a of a certain kind uh are all potentially songs and it it so happens that a song that he writes called suzanne um gets recorded uh by judy collins and when um and then when this song becomes a hit, uh, he's going to like be a, a songwriter. And then he records a, uh, an album called uh, The Songs of Leonard Cohen, uh, which contains Suzanne and, and a couple other things that really um, become, uh, you know, big hits for him, including a song called uh, So Long, Marianne, uh, which was about his relationship with with Marianne. And then... Um, 
you know, and then kind of one thing leads to another, right? Like he has this, he has this career doing, uh, 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 as a recording artist, he goes on tour, he tours all over the world. People, I mean, at least people in, in, you know, the, the West seem to like really connect with him. Um, he d- ends up kind of in a scene in New York at, at a certain, a certain time. Um, you know, one thing leads to another, his relationship with Marianne deteriorates because he's off being a great artist and and you know she's just a muse at home like looking for someone to inspire and uh you know she's got her own child to neglect and the whole um the whole the, the system of the relationship deteriorates i mean the film is is you know purportedly about their relationship though i think she kind of gets short shrift uh in it it it's interesting. I mean, it's interesting. The tone of the film is something that, that I want to ask about because it's not exactly like revisionist history in that it doesn't like position itself as a corrective to the, um, to the standard narrative of Leonard Cohen. If anything, it kind of buttresses up the standard level uh, narrative of the kind of the great man, spiritual seeker, uh, you know, poet, mystic, um, performer, songwriter, uh, that, you know, was so, was tended so, uh, uh, attentively during his life and, uh, you know, persists, persists after his death within the last couple of years. Um, but, uh, it does, I mean, it adds a couple of, it adds a couple of footnotes to it and that's, I don't know, it's not, I, I was looking kind of more for her movie and didn't, didn't get that. It sort of leaves her alone and kind of focuses on Leonard Cohen for, for a lot of it. But, but setting that aside, he, uh, leaves recording, um, for a little while and goes and lives for uh, a long time in a, uh, Buddhist monastery at the Mount Baldy Zen Center above Los Angeles. Um, when he comes back, he discovers that his uh, his money has all been stolen by his manager. So he embarks late in life, in his 70s, he embarks on a world tour, which turns into this huge, you know, million dollar, tens of millions of dollars selling thing. He's, he's suddenly playing, you know, big arenas or bigger than, bigger than he uh, had ever played before. He's a bigger deal. Um, you know this this ends and then the the thing that the uh the thing that the um the movie doesn't go into is that he he gets sick records a last album which is called you want it darker uh which is both a a, a positive claim and also kind of like a troll like um a troll to his fan base a little bit right like you know oh i'm in a relationship and i want it you know i want it to be like light and airy and fun but you want it darker that's one meaning the other one is oh oh yeah mf oh yeah global audience of of millions you want it darker okay you know and that's uh um and it's an interesting thing to uh interesting to compare it to david bowie's black star recorded around about the same time they both knew they were dying and uh it ended up being their uh their last work both of them and we we actually did did episodes on both of them on uh both of those records on uh the tft podcast so um you know he is this incredible he's this incredible figure uh probably probably like writer is the way songwriter is the way that I would describe him in his his most powerful uh, uh most powerful gift and what I think his legacy will be though he had great charisma he was not really a performer per se um he was not a singer by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> like if you care about things like 
pitch, intonation, phrasing, uh, any of this stuff. Like he, he was not good at that. He had this sort of low, gravelly voice, which conveyed a lot of, of gravitas. It was a gravel gravitas, uh, a gravel toss, if you will. And, and, um, and that, but, uh, you know, and, and then also like Pete to kind of to throw back to you, like, I totally get why you think he's, why he comes off as really ridiculous. Uh, but I think he has to be understood in context, right? And he, he and the kind of things he was doing were being taken very seriously in context. I also think you have to like, you have to come into contact with him early in life, maybe in, in adolescence or in your twenties or something like that in order to, and not in sort of early middle age, right? Like where, where we find ourselves, uh, alone in a dark wood because we have made several wrong turns, but the, uh, you know, the, but Leonard Cohen, I think also though, he, he recorded well into his, his seventies or eighties. And I forget exactly, but like he can be our Virgil and guide us down through the inferno of, of, uh, you know, of middle age and into the, into the per- of elder sorry this this metaphor is falling apart pete come in here so let me let me let me ask let me uh address what this movie is from yet another dimension because this movie is a lot of things and i do hope that even after hearing us talk about it you still go see it because i think it's worth seeing even though i wouldn't necessarily call it an authoritative work about leonard cohen sort of a magnum opus about leonard cohen exactly that's not really quite what it is because there's this additional angle to this movie that is really interesting and kind of goes less spoken in the movie than it probably should, which is that it's made by this guy named Nick Broomfield, whose name I didn't recognize and whose voice I thought was Will Ferrell from those Saturday Night Live sketches where he's in a hot tub with Rachel Dratch and he's like, I'm with my lover eating raw meats from each other's bodies, right? He has this like very kind of highfalutin, half Scandinavian uh, kind of uh, trans, trans Baltic way of talking. Uh, And, uh, it turns out that this guy went well in the me in the last 25, 30 years, this guy has become a very successful documentary filmmaker. He made the Curtin Courtney documentary that drummed up a lot of attention. He made the Heidi Fleiss Hollywood Madam documentary. He's made documentaries about Sarah Palin, Whitney Houston, uh, you know, Biggie and Tupac. Right. Uh, yep. Won all sorts of awards. Right. So this is a guy who is now 70. And has made, you know, 20 major documentary films or more in his life. And it turns out when this guy was a 20 year old kid, he was like the rebound for Leonard Cohen's kind of muse wife when she left the Greek island of Idra. Uh, Hail Idra, by the way, uh, and uh, and and was sort of moving on with her life. And so he was he became her lover, as he describes himself, one of her lovers, as he describes himself in the movie, and had this experience with this woman who was really heavily focused on through the lens of some other dude's art, but who you got the sense nobody really knew personally. And because of this relationship with her, he has a bunch of video footage of her. He knows the people that are close to her. He knows her family members in ways that maybe somebody hunting from Rolling Stone would not. And so the movie is peppered with interviews and footage, like home movie footage of this woman, Marianne, who or Mariana, who was so intimately involved with Leonard Cohen for so long that it might be appropriate to refer to her perhaps as his first wife. 
right? Like, but not exactly, right? Because this gets free love. It's a different time. They didn't make that kind of commitment to each other. They were constantly sleeping with other people. But like this person who had this really central uh, place in this narrative of this artist's life happens to have slept with a major documentarian in his formative years. So you get the sense that this work is kind of also a bit of a con com uh, commentary on his other work. Like this is like, okay, now I'm making a legit documentary. That's about something that really matters to me. Uh, and so it pulls out a lot of stops, I think, including what I would say is one of the most staggering ghost ship moments I've ever seen in a movie. Sure. Uh, right up there with ghost ship itself. Although of course in ghost ship, the ghost ship, moment is at the beginning and this movie the ghost ship is at the very very end but the idea that this is a movie that's by and about nick broomfield whose life intersects with leonard cohen's life through his sexual relationship with leonard cohen's basically ex-wife is a really interesting angle on like all the interviews with all the people around them are about all the people around them as much as they are about these sort of core people in the heart of this artistic story. Yeah. I mean, it is, yeah, it is interesting. It's, it is kind of a portrait of a milieu, right. Of that, like that Greek Island, that particular Greek Island, Greek Island, Idra. And that like, uh, it's, it seems like a lot of people came through there. It seemed, you know, it seems like it was like Greenwich village or something like that. It was like just a place in the world that was known for a kind of artists to go and like work and find themselves. And it's, it's described, it's sort of mythologized in the, in the documentary as a crucible for people's creativity. Like you, yeah. you like, you go to see if you can actually hack it as an artist, if your creativity, if you have enough to like, to stay creative, to like do your, work on this island um partly because of the what because of the sun or because of the the kind of the harsh landscape or the the fact that there's no like i don't know electricity or running water or i mean I, some of it is a little vague but like it seems like there are challenges it's not the most the most comfortable place to live but also because it's such a scene right because there's so many drugs because there's so much sex all around because everyone's sleeping with everyone and the whole you know like and that like and marriages don't survive right like the whole it sort of destroys people like in the the um like one of the one of the best was she an Australian woman the 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 woman who is married to uh Leonard Cohen's kind of Canadian BFF growing up, right? Like, yes, yes. This guy, like, and and she was like, "Look, it was all." I, I can't do the Australian accent, but she was like, "Look, it was all free love at the time," and that's like, like real talk, people. That's terrible for children. <laughs> like, yeah, ch children need like secure attachment to that. They need to know that they're being taken care of. And so many, in, including Mariana's child from her earlier marriage before she met Leonard Cohen, like, like so many people, children suffered a lot from this to the point where her son ended up institutionalized, but you know, not maybe because of, uh, or at least it, it couldn't have helped the fact that, you know, he was being shuttled off to boarding schools and like this quasi father figure was coming into and out of his life. And like that she was being neglected by his mother who was, you know, busy jetting around internationally being a high profile muse to famous people. And like this, uh, you know, this was not, um, this was not like a healthy or good environment in a lot of ways. And yet like we were doing it because like we wanted it, it was exciting for us, you know, and you also get the sense that like, this was where society was at. This is what our political commitments were. This is what, you know what I mean? We thought that this was a good, uh, in some way, like sh throwing off the shackles of the, the, you know, repressive old world. Um, you know, and that, that, that may be, but, but turns out children need what children have needed for 
you know, all, all time, which is to be cared for. And, and that was like, I, you know, I thought, I thought this was interesting. So the idea of like the, the, the Greek Island as, as being this thing that would like chew you up and spit you out, um, that there were like real casualties, uh, of this sort of emotionally, like uh, psychologically in, in life. Um, the idea that people would just dose each other with acid on the island, oh, like, yeah. a, like surprise acid trip sounds very unpleasant, you know? Uh, and that like, um, that this was just sort of, sort of going around. Like, it, so the, the the film becomes like a portrait of that milieu and like where all those people, where all those people who were there ended up. Many of them went back to Northern Europe, right? Went back to Scandinavia. One of the, many of them went to Nick Broomfield. Went back to the UK and you know was a student afterwards. I actually wasn't clear on a lot of the timing. There was a lot of slippage with like, wait, what happened before? Uh, before what it's a point that the film makes actually that like biographers of Leonard Cohen sort of describe his Marianne period and then uh, the period with his his uh, later I guess wife maybe or or you know serious mm-hmm. serious relationship whose name was Suzanne coincidentally enough um, that like uh, you know that this was a um, that these were distinct distinct periods and the the point the film makes was like no there was a lot of like overlap uh, uh, between these things and it was all it was all kind of messy so it's and and the film kind of. I guess, uh, in a certain extent, honors that um, chronological slippage by not being totally clear about when things are happening. But I thought that, like, the director came to Hydra and met Marianne, and they became lovers. And then, uh, and then Leonard happened, or maybe it was after, or maybe during a break between Leonard. But then, like, Marianne had another lover who who showed up. Like, uh, we're making fun of it, but it like we don't necessarily have a great vocabulary vocabulary to uh to describe the you know um to describe the the like the the uh kind of relationship that is engendered in a in a situation like this and it strikes me that a lot of this has been rebranded recently as like ethical non-monogamy or like polyamory or something like that and like it is like a uh uh definitely definitely a kind of an exploration of the leonard cohen polycule and kind of using that i guess as a lens into understanding um, a little bit about what uh, a little bit about what went on. I you know right. I don't know, but like uh, I I I actually I want to talk to uh, you know I I know I know I'm speaking to Rainier Wolf, Wolfcastle. Can I speak to McBain? I know I'm speaking to uh, to um, you know contemporary Pete Fenzel, but uh, can I talk to like uh, uh, angsty teenage aspiring artist? <laughs> Pete Fenzel uh, about uh, about going to uh, about going to Hydra and uh, making <laughs> and just sure. write, just writing shirtless under the hot sun, you know your your uh, Irish skin crisping to a to a you know into a red potato chip in the the sun of Hydra. So here's the thing about <laughs> Hydra. Here's the thing about Hydra, and as I was thinking about how to frame this. Uh, is is uh, I would say that this movie somewhat frames Leonard Cohen as the Vince Lombardi of being miserable when you have everything that you want, <laughs> right? Like as in like he approaches living on a Greek island with no physical needs, being catered to and loved by you know physically and emotionally by anybody around him, and and he and he with a single mindedness towards producing the written word that that is what helps him survive. 
this whole thing is is my sense from it is that the people who did not survive were people who went to the free love compound or or whatever it is right and and i would even say that calling it by the words that are currently used for those sorts of relationships uh, gives lie, right? Or like is is inaccurate because they're part of why they're doing it is deliberately in order to confound the idea of organizing their relationships and responsibilities in a way that makes sense. Adolescent Pete Fenzel hates this kind of music because this is music about people who just had sex and are sad about it. And in particular, this is music by men directed at women whom they've just had sex with, presuming that they are sad and that something is wrong with them and comforting them by telling them all the things that are wrong with them. Well, that's I mean, of <laughs> course, of course, something's wrong with it. Of course, something's wrong with you, my partner. You just had sex with me. Yeah, like, it's, it's like, why it's like, would I, you have done that if you, there weren't something wrong with you? How dare you give me the thing that I want? <laughs> yes, that that is sort of there's a and it's not just Leonard Cohen. I feel like there's a lot of music that is like this, and part of it is that I'm not supposed to be the person that it's for, right? Like it's certainly not supposed to be for people who, as teenagers, were like really wrestling with the relative value of chastity, right? Like it is not if that was ever a problem in your life. I feel like this this movie is not for you, or not movie phrase. This music is not for you, but but just the idea that like that like yeah, like if these people are so sad and they're in a relationship with you. You're kind of ab- and, and I, I can't even say that you're abrogating your own responsibility for like them being sad about things. Not that when you're in, you know, a relationship, sexual relationship with somebody, even if it's casual, like like they're supposed to be happy all the time. But I mean, when you take something like um, what is it like? Well, like Marianne, right? Like, let's look at the Marianne song again. Uh, let me see if I can bring it bring it back. The Le- Marianne song, Leonard Cohen. Is it called? Uh, it was going to be called Comeback. Marianne, but come he on, the name. come on, Marianne, come on, Marianne, and, and so long, yeah, so long, Marianne is the is the the way that it got uh, the way that it got recorded, as though it's a valediction. And the point that's made in the movie is that it's not actually a valediction. Right. It's a you know, it's a uh, it's a come live with me and be my love kind of song. Right, except except that he was you know totally tripping out on acid when he was writing it. So like, how do you know? But also because the author is dead in both literal and figurative sense. Like, the, what this the music, this kind of music really depends on the person listening to it having a very different frame of reference from the person that's writing it, because the life circumstances that Leonard Cohen are experiencing are so alien to people that I don't think that uh, and and he almost has to like glitch his internal computer in order to produce this stuff. Right, that's kind of this this. Idea idea of the artist but so okay Let, let's let's go through a little bit of so long marianne and again i don't want to bash this part of it i want to understand it but but why i have difficulty with this stuff come over to the window my little darling i'd like to try to read your palm i used to think i was some kind of gypsy boy before i let you take me home um I, first of all i let you take me home <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, I'm sorry that she's such a burden on you. Right. Like that, uh, that you were res- I, there's very little in Leonard Cohen's oeuvre that suggests that he resisted. Right. Like uh, and, and there doesn't seem to be anything in his life that suggested that he resisted. And so this this sort of coy attitude of like, well, I was going to resist you, but then you you took me home with you. Right. Like uh, as is putting on her responsibility for the current situation. Right. Like a gypsy boy. So what's going on with that phrase gypsy boy? I used to think I was a gypsy 
boy with the power to be a palm reader. There's this like he's exoticizing himself, right? He's like obfuscating himself. He's making himself more mysterious. And my sense in the context of this song is that the quintessential situation is that the man is being obscure to the woman in the song, that they're in a relationship where the terms of it are unclear. And a big reason why it's unclear is that the man is being deliberately obtuse. And he's partly being deliberately obtuse in order to get her to sleep with him. That is like what teenage Pete Fenzel would say, right? That it's like, oh, I was a gypsy and I read palms, but I'm not really that anymore. And who am I? And I'm so, oh man, you know, like, but I'm so exotic. Maybe I'm this, maybe I'm that. What do you want me to be? Right. And it's like, so this woman follows him around all over the place, you know, kind of caught up in this mystery. And in the meantime, ends up being like more or less entirely emotionally neglected. My little darling. Right. Um, you know, like being dimi- being diminished, being infantilized by this whole process of being made a muse, which is, you know, in, in certain cases, being almost a nurse because he's incapable in this period of his life of taking care of his own needs because he's on amphetamines all the time. Right. So it's like so she, when I say she brings him sandwiches, the way the movie tells it is that, like, he is sitting there on speed yeah. writing all day and she is keeping him alive. And and that is their relationship. And the idea that this act is that of a muse that is providing it with inspiration seems like to greatly diminish both what she's actually doing for him and also kind of what he needs from her. Right. And there's something about this sort of cool lyricism that really tries to both shove off the idea that the person singing has any needs that need to be taken care of and then sort of conveniently kind of turns around and kind of like leaves them like an open wound. Like, look at all my needs. Right. Look at all these incredible deep sadnesses and needs that I have. Uh, And then songs like this, it's like you're pushing the person away and you're not letting them in and you're not letting them understand. And this all of this, uh, it's funny. I mean, I think it's kind of appropriate as I kind of come around on it. It's thinking, oh, what is being described here is a model of relationships that's totally foreign to the model of relationships that I grew up thinking was the way that people were supposed to be together in 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 uh, in adult pair bonds, right? Regardless of gender, right? But if you're thinking like two people are together and they're being physically enemy with each other and they love each other, I was raised with a very strong sense of the kind of responsibilities that those people had for each other. And what these Letter Cohen songs are detailing are a wide variety of different kinds of relationships where those kinds of responsibilities are not happening. Happening. Uh, and uh, that's on purpose. Of course, of course it is, because this is the era of free love and they're deliberately trying to change the, and yet, the mode. I mean, it is sure they're deliberately trying. And, and yet this like this idea of like of, you know, uh, suffering male genius and kind of a female caretaker. Right. Is still, you know, it's still Don Draper and, and Betty. Yeah. Right. A little bit. It just happens to have, you know, slightly more exotic, uh, slightly more exotic set dressing mise en scène. You know, uh, it's the the underlying dynamics aren't changed which was which was an interesting thing um interesting thing that i that i thought about this like the 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 how retrograde the gender politics of a lot of this um a lot of these people a lot of these like free love hippies right who are you know trying to find new or trying to find new ways like to to a great extent you know the people a lot of the people uh who are doing this are like well no i kind of i kind of want the things i want to show up when i want them uh, at very little cost to me and to like go yeah. away when they you know when they become stifling or uh, or oppressive and don't you know you don't get to you know you don't get to be pissed off right at that because like hey look i told you you know um i to- told you it was free love like you're you're trying to charge me for your free love baby and i'm just i'm just uh i'm just not into that um 
you know, that's, uh, yeah. right. Like that's, uh, uh, yeah. what, what was going on. And that, I mean, that struck me a lot of this, like the, the, I don't know, just the lack of people who lived through the sixties, who, who were engaged in that, who were not like, you know, sort of, uh, bourgeois suburban, you know, whatever, like people who were privileged enough to like be able to throw off the shackles of, of whatever, either because they had parents who would catch them if they fell or else because they were so, you know, beneath the radar of society because they were so like poor or destitute anyway, that it really didn't matter if they, if you go live in, in Golden Gate Park or whatever. Um, like uh, those people, you know, who who lived through it, sort of talk about the the end of the '60s is like, man, you know, there was this time when we thought society was opening up for a second, and then it shut right down again, you know. And when you look at that time, uh, the thing that always strikes me about it is how, you know. I, uh, sort of how short-sighted it's a, a lot of that, how short-sighted a lot of that seemed, right? Like how there, there a lot of the, uh, and, and how like the, a sort of spiritual quest replaced a quest for a more stable or substantial type of social justice that like, that might actually have raised people's like, like uh, alleviated suffering on a, on a massive scale beyond merely the, uh, beyond merely the here and now, or, or rather I should say beyond merely the be here now, you know, and that like, uh, and, and this sort of, this part takes in that, um, a lot, you know, uh, yeah. now the thing I'd say, Pete, is that Leonard Cohen was actually a really good writer, right? Yeah. And, and that's the yes. thing. That's the thing that's different because there were a lot of asshole boyfriends in the sixties. Mm-hmm. You, you know what I mean? Like the, there were a lot. I dare of, say that there are a lot of them now, no. and I dare say I've been that person in no, my life have, at times. It's, no, no, we have times up now. There are no asshole boyfriends <laughs> it's anymore. It's all fixed. Yeah, exactly. All right. It's all we're we're done. But like there are a lot of there were a lot of asshole boyfriends in the sixties, and you know not all of them wrote Hallelujah. You know what I mean? Like, and that's, that's, uh, that's the, that's the thing. The other thing that actually the, the, it's funny, the, the group of, of, um, three ladies with oxygen tanks sitting next to me were talking very loudly during the movie. And I, I couldn't, unlike teenagers, when we see the, the superhero movies that we we usually see, like I couldn't bring myself to like get mad at them because they like, they couldn't hear each other and they wanted to talk to their friends. Um, but like, Oh, I can't stand him. He's so self-indulgent is what one of, one of these uh, old Jewish ladies said when, when I was uh, – that I, that I overheard in their, in their conversation. And I thought like, yeah, yeah. Wait, no. He's depressed. Like, yeah. and that's like, and this is the thing. If you deal with people who deal with mental illness, like depression looks a lot like self-indulgence to, to the outside. And I think like this was a guy who, uh, maybe not at a level where it made him uh, unable to function, or maybe he was just so famous that like there, there grew up this superstructure around him that like made it possible for him to function, but he didn't, I mean, he didn't need it to the sen- to the extent that like Judy Garland needed it or something like that. But this was a guy who was like mentally ill his whole life, who was, yeah. who was depressed his whole life and like this was not there was a different language for talking about it and we've talked actually in the past um talking about uh uh, the fast and the furious about like what you gain and what you lose when you pathologize uh mental illness you know when you pathologize depression like you gain um a way of talking about it uh 
and 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 you lose a sense you you lose a sense that there are paths to dealing with it beyond um uh you know therapy and medication right and that like uh beyond the kind of the medical discourse that you've you've imported it into and like this was a guy who like the greeks would have called melancholy you know and like a lot of that you know like he he was an asshole boyfriend he was an asshole boyfriend cuz cuz he was melancholy like he was he was depressed like he probably couldn't you know probably didn't have great relate models for relationship you know he he uh was a spiritual seeker right like but he but um I, but he had this sort of talent for kind of communicating where he was at and like to, to, to a certain extent, like, I I feel like you need to, uh, you need to distinguish between the calculated asshole boyfriend and the sincere asshole boyfriend. You know what I mean? And like, he was absolutely a sincere asshole boyfriend (laughs) his whole life. And you get the sense that like, cause this movie follows him into his seventies. You get the sense that like, he kind of makes peace with it. And and he was like, Oh, uh, at a certain point he's interviewed and like, he's talking about, Oh yeah, I was, I was like womanizing, trying to like, trying to sort of fill the hole inside myself or even like trying going at it, like a sort of puzzle, you know, uh, like how do I, you know, how do I like seduce all of these women? And by the way, uh, it's clear he was great at it. And there's a, there are a couple moments where you see him talking with women and his complete like relaxation while, uh, while at the same time being like 100% present and like, I am inside your mind right now, you know, like is, is amazing. There's a shot of him like coming off a bus in, in it and he's like looking into the camera with this charisma that it's like oh yeah you know what I'd sleep with him right like the the, the t- it makes makes total sense um, but you know as he's going through that he's like he's describing it in this uh, he's describing it in this super compelling way and and you know I don't know with a kind of rigor you know with a kind of discipline um, I think that uh, there's this sort of discipline that characterizes a lot of his uh, a lot of his work the very short line right the uh the um refusal to use a lot of highfalutin uh highfalutin diction in Mm -hmm. a lot of his writing um and and he he really lets a lot land on each symbol that he uses right he's like he just puts it out there and and i almost feel like if you haven't listened to the song 10 times you're never gonna understand what he's talking about yeah right yeah yeah for sure and that's yeah, and that's you know, and and even like you know, even in in an album like Various Positions from 1984 that Hallelujah comes comes off of, like that's a song about that's a that's a a, a whole record about kind of reconciling the the sort of spiritual and the erotic. Um, that that like how do you you know how do you sort of make sense of this of your sort of lived experience as like an incarnated person and you know in the in the carne right like in the meat space and also your like your uh your spiritual capacities and your you know philosophical convictions of, of various times and how do you do like this is why it's when people you know when people write like easter lyrics to hallelujah and like sing it in church it it just like it makes me face palm very very hard because it's like you haven't you've you've like heard the you've heard the like the really nice chorus but like you've completely misunderstood the you know the the whole point of this song it's a very weak misreading of of um of leonard cohen's of leonard cohen's hallelujah but but like uh, yeah that this is like 
um, Kind of, uh, that I, oh, I lost my, I lost my thread, Pete. But, but that, yeah. that, like, that this is, you know, this is where he's, he's, uh, going with this and that there, there is something like very sincere about kind of being a seeker, uh, and you know, I mean, this is a guy who who went up for like most of a decade to a to a Zen center, lived without electricity, like like sweeping snow off of the the cobblestone path up to the uh, cobblestone path up to the front door, and like meditating or chanting for fourteen hours a day, right? Like it's uh, you can't say that that uh, he didn't have the the discipline to sort of follow his convictions, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure, and. Uh... I would say that I really I really connect with this this idea that you've talked about with regards to the creativity that's coming out of these kinds of relationships in the 60s and and the challenge that's being posed by how these people are trying to live and his depression and all this coming together with the idea that like they never can quite break free of the things that they're trying to break free of. Right. But there, but, but it also, what I'm I'm trying to say is that on one hand, adding to everything that you've said, these expressions are coming from a sincere place of somebody who is very bothered. And again, it's like your situation, you might, you might be depressed, but maybe you're just sad and you're listening to Leonard Cohen and Leonard Cohen is full on depressed 24 hours a day and like extends his day for extra hours so that he can pump more and more of what he's capable of producing into the work that you then, that you then read or watch. Uh, and this, there's this sort of strain to kind of break free or, or or either to shed light on or elucidate or codify or create, right? When you when you have these sort of creative imageries. So going back to the movie, I, I'm like my mind is spinning with a lot of what you're saying, a lot of what's in this movie, and a lot of what is in this sort of area of the culture. Going back to the movie and going back to that Australian woman, the old Australian woman who was the wife of Leonard Cohen's, like, uh, sort of mentor dude, right? And she talks about, uh, you know, that he was a writer and you could never really own him, right? And there, you couldn't have him, you couldn't have him as a husband because he was always going to be creating in this way. And this all raises the question of, okay, okay, with all this in mind, what is the creation that's happening? What is being created? And I don't think it's necessarily fair to say that it's this sort of strain, this sort of hypocritical straining against social mores in a sort of vector direction that turns out to like not be true north and turns out to sort of snap back when it breaks the physical and emotional uh, constraints or limits of the people who are trying to practice it. Right. It's like uh, that's not exactly what it is. But but there's this way in which the language is generated. The imagery is generated. It feels like a generator. It's like he's being protected protected and isolated so that he can continue to kind of generate this idea of creativity. And then for him, it's it's related to this really deep and intense depression. But that's not how people see him. People see him as this luminary. And there's that story in the movie where he's playing, I think it's Royal Albert Hall. I'm not sure. But he's playing Royal Albert Hall. And they talk about how they take a very potent hallucinogen and they don't come down for the entire week of shows that they're performing. Right. And he's been made this sort of holy fool, this sort of shaman figure, this, this, he means he's almost like Bran Stark, right? Like hooked into the wirewood net, just like communicate, he's supposed to be communicating this sort of spiritual thing from, from beyond the constraints of, of modern living through his sort of emotional intensity. I mean, I guess what I'm trying to get at here, Matt, is some sort of revised idea of like a lyrical ballads premise 
uh, about what I might even refer what a dharmic romantic, right? Like not even a romantic, but something like being a romantic that is related instead to this dharmic idea of a kind of deeper way that the universe is supposed to be by nature that you can interact with by like achieving altered states of consciousness or like finding these sort of genius holy fools that are notable not they don't care about leonard cohen because of his skill with words necessarily his skill per se it's this idea that he has this kind of transcendent generative power as a creative what we would call a creative but not even really right like the word isn't appropriate for the situation um that i don't know i feel like if he were born now he'd be cranking out the advertising jingles or whatever right yeah 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 creative you know and he would right now if he were born now he would be a consciously decoupled polyamorous creative but isn't that a lot more boring than what he really was right right Uh, (laughs) but it's like you get the sense that um that there's this idea of this idea of reaching towards a I don't know whether it's a strong or weak misreading of Eastern religions, right? This, this like idea that we need to get away from these Western paradigms and reach towards this sort of Eastern paradigm, uh, which has to do with kind of being one with each other and with nature and, and all these sort of cliches that you could try to use to nail it down, but you can't quite, um, yeah, I mean, the thing that ends up gets him seeking out Buddhism as opposed to a different sort of uh, I mean, he certainly doesn't go and live in like a Jewish compound. Right. Even uh, though, though he, he was. Does. Yeah. I mean, though he was he was sort of involved or curious about anyway, Jewish mysticism yeah. as well. And this is a you know, this is a thing. But like his sort of his description of love as being a kind of a um you know, uh, uh, being a, a sort of thing where the kind of the male and female unify, like the male and female, which is kind of not uh, super popular today because there's this idea that like you're talking about you're talking about like gender roles, but like you know he's talking about an energy. You know, he's talking yeah. about like disparate different aspects of energy, and that like these these dis- these these opposed aspects of energy kind of unify in in love. You know, uh, that like that there is a sense of kind of like head- there is a sense of kind of heading toward words um there's kind of a, a sense of heading towards a oneness and maybe the, the the difference between the the young man and the older man is that like uh oh well before i thought like i couldn't let you take me home and i in that i would sort of i would distinguish like take me home from take me to bed right like sort of entice me into a relationship of of you know oh right right mutual caretaking as opposed to like uh as opposed to like just the bonin per se um that like uh but that like oh like to a certain extent like the the oneness of all things has been whispering to us to come home from the beginning uh and we're just too stupid as young people to to hear it and understand that that is what we most need and desire um that like this this really uh is what the the um this is really what the the uh, kind of progression of the life turns out to be. Like la- later in 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 uh, on you want a darker the the I guess you could call it a single is called treaty, um, where it's describing a relationship between uh, between people at, at from a from a different perspective from a kind of an exhausted uh, perspective rather than from a, a perspective of newness. And the chorus is. Um, uh, the uh, the chorus is, I wish there was a treaty we could sign. I do not care who takes this bloody hill. Uh, I'm angry and I'm tired all the time. I wish there was a treaty. I wish there was a treaty between your heart and mine. 
right? And the idea that the thing that we're talking about, the thing that we're headed towards, is uh, is a kind of agreement. <laughs> is it, is it <laughs> sort, sort of, of formal agreement that has to do with people in love with each other? <laughs> yeah, or yeah, and even I mean, and on a less on a less legalistic level, a kind of a, a sense of mutual surrender, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than rather than everyone sort of pushing their rather than everyone kind of pushing their agenda all the damn time that this would be a um you know that this would be a desirable state of affairs to 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 find yourself in and and i don't know as we kind of went went towards a close i mean i guess let's let's talk a little bit about the uh um uh talk about the end of the movie now this was yeah. inter- this was international news uh when marianne died and um her friend whose name was jan or i mean all their names are jan but the the uh the her her friend got word to Leonard somehow that like Marianne is dying and he within hours had written back a letter um to her it's uh that you know I'll I'll put the exact words in the show notes but he says ba- basically like he know he knew he was dying at the time he's like Marianne I'm right behind you close enough to take your hand um you know and he says uh uh, you know uh, the the well, now I wish I had the whole text in front of me. The the, the uh, says you know I could say a lot about uh, your love and your beauty, but you don't need to hear that now. Um, you know, good luck to you on this journey, and I will see you just down the road. And f- through some. Uh, well, I guess everyone has an iPhone now all the time, but like there was a, a, a camera filming her when she heard this in her on her deathbed in in the hospital um you know when this letter was being related to her and that's where the the uh the that's where the ghostship moment happens because Jan not her but Jan who the younger person who who uh read this note from Leonard to her says um you know, it, it kind of put her at peace and like enabled her to kind of be calm as she was dying or, or be, you know, uh, in some way satisfied or fulfilled as she was dying. And that this is the, you know, this is the sort of the power of words of love. Right. And there's, and there it is the ghost ship moment. That's what now it's a little cheap as a ghost ship moment because like you put that, you put that clip at the end and then make that the title of your movie. Like you're kind of manufacturing the ghost ship moment. It's a little, it's a little bit, uh, uh, synthesized in a lab, but right. But even so, you know, um, it, it's very powerful. And if there were words, I mean, Leonard Cohen was not short on words, you know, but they were not words of love. They were words of something else. <laughs> and, and we've been kind of delving a little bit into, uh, into what they were. Um, but the idea that a life, that a life brings you around to words of love is, is not, I suppose, an unhappy ending. I don't know. How did you, Pete, how did you, uh, read that, that final moment in the film? I mean, everybody else in the movie theater I was in was crying, I think. <laughs> But I think it was necessary that they knew who these people were and that they had a previous relationship with what these people meant to them. Yeah. That it really resonated with them. I thought it was very powerful. I thought that um, that her hearing that from him at the end of her life, it wasn't necessarily just that it was from him like she had been pining after him the whole time because she's like Rose on Titan- in Titanic, right? She has the 
torrid love relationship with the unforgettable, you know, shooting star of a man. And then she goes on and she gets married and she has a regular life. But at the end, when she's on her deathbed, what she's remembering is the shooting star, right? What she's remembering is the night in the car on the sinking boat, uh, right? Which is not a metaphor worthy of a Leonard Cohen song, <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, but like she's, she's, we are thinking of that. She is thinking of that because she has been so bound up in being in this man's songs. People, you know, asking her about it all the time, all this other stuff. But but also just this sense that when they were on that island and they had this relationship, that there was this part of the relationship that wasn't there. It seems to echo through the movie. And or this thing that, that she didn't have or that he didn't have. It's not just him. It's not just that he was neglectful, right? She had her own stuff going on. But that, um, I mean, the guy at the end of the movie, Jan, Jan the Younger, uh, describes it as a circle, right? Is that it is a ring and he draws the ring in the air and that there was something about the shape of it, that 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 having been in that island after her first divorce with Leonard Cohen and having this sort of intense creative relationship where it's pointed out multiple times, she had no real role. Like, she, yeah, sure, she's the muse, whatever. I, I'm very dismissive of this idea of somebody being a muse. Um, I look back on things that I've written that have been inspired by specific people and I don't find them to be particularly better than anything else. There's definitely like there's an occasion that it creates, right? Like because you're trying to impress them or what or you have intense feelings or what. Um, but I feel like she was part of that community and she was an essential part of that community, an essential part of him getting that work done and him surviving. And they were basically married. Right. And, and all that stuff put together is that she had this moment and then her life goes on this like wandering journey to all these other places. And his wife also goes on this wandering journey to all these other different sorts of places and that it comes together at the end, there is a comfort in the shape of it that I think is interesting from a perspective of how people relate to life. And I think what also – I mean I, I alluded to this a little bit, but the concept of dharma and the concept of you know karma and the knot of karma and this notion of there being an underlying fiber to the universe – that people are trying to reach out for through these transcendent experiences and that which they try to leave their mundane experience because they feel like their mundane experience is obscuring the brilliant truth of the universe. But then they have to go back. Either they destroy themselves or they go back. And whatever light there was, maybe it's there, maybe it's not. Um, I mean, if you're looking from somebody who's into Zen, there seems to be a real a real uh, Zen idea here, right? There's a real sense of like a loop that is closing as if it, it sort of reaches a point of non-existence uh, that, that is beautiful and powerful. But I'm interested in how it's comforting um, to people because it doesn't offer a sort of traditional. It's not like, oh, it's not just, oh, I always loved you. You're always the best. It was always worth it. And she always needed to hear that. It was that it needed to come back. It needed to come home. It needed to come full circle. And that when it came full circle, you would almost say that, you know, in a, in a Jungian or Freudian sort of way, I forget which in this case, like the fanatic impulse wins, right? The impulse of the living. If you think of the living being as sort of always trying to figure out whether it wants to be alive or wants to be dead uh, in, in these sorts of uh, early models of proto psychology and the notion that a, a living being 
eventually will want to die, but it will need to accomplish everything that it needs to accomplish before it feels that way. Like it needs to reach a sense where it feels like it's right. What what the sort of non-Shakespearean readings of Lear would describe as a ripe old age, right? Like, like you know, in the, in the stories, King Lear lived to a ripe old age and didn't, you know, have the sort of experiences, the old man raging against the storm. Um, that, that this word of love, this kindness provided her with that relationship with the universe as her life ended and that it was a profound kindness mm. that that is really what i walk away from it with is not so much like oh they were in love the whole time because they weren't but that letter at the end from leonard cohen to her was a profound kindness on the part of leonard cohen i think and not just that he wrote the letter because you know you can write a letter, but he wrote that letter and that letter seemed really powerful and it seemed really to affect her. And it seemed to really recall a relationship with her that was grounded in their experience together and him really knowing her, not just like some person she knew long, he knew long ago. Right. And that, that, but writing that letter gave her something that she needed. And, and that's, and that speaks, it's almost as if it transforms the whole idea of what this artist is supposed to be doing. It almost like it almost calls into question everything that they've been doing up until that entire point, as if only at the end do they really figure out what it is that they could be doing with their art. Um, maybe they were doing it the whole time. Maybe they weren't. But it was only clear at the end. And that in and of itself is beautiful and powerful. So um, and then when you go look back and you look at the picture of them kind of suntanned or sunburned and you can't tell because it's so long ago because the, the picture is in black and white. And you know how little they knew about each other or themselves because they both were going to go on these big, long journeys, how much they thought they knew and how little they actually knew. Coming to that place at the end and and, and looking at it as an echo of that potential that was in the beginning of like the woman and not the statue, right, is uh, is powerful and beautiful and makes the movie, I think, worth watching if you were thinking of watching it, even, yeah. though, we spoiled, even though we spoiled it at this point. Well, I so. mean, it's, it, there's nothing unknown. There's no suspense in the thing, except, I no. guess, if we spoiled that there is footage of her uh, on her deathbed hearing the letter. But that's, yeah. a, that's a beautiful way to end. Thank you very much, Pete, for podcasting, and thank you for mm-hmm. listening. Uh, we'll, you know, we commend to you the, the uh, film Marianne and Leonard, Words of Love. <laughs> I hope it plays in your, in your city. It's one that's worth checking out. Or, or honestly, you know, there's not that much that a big movie theater adds to this you could watch it uh you could watch it on streaming when it comes out and i hope you do uh and let us know what you think about it in the comments on the show notes for this this episode all right we'll be back with more overthinking it podcast next week till then visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't You know, Matt, when I bought my ticket to this movie, yeah. it gave me some really important information. You know what uh-huh. it told me? What? It told me it was in 2D. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to the 3D version or to the motion ride. <laughs> Audio animatronic. Marianne and Leonard swoops and screams. Marianne and Leonard like diving within the human blood vessel. (laughs) Basically, I'm saying frizzle it up, people. Get on that magic school bus and make some things happen.